I hope everybody's doing well tonight, and it's cold outside, so I hope you're staying warm. Uh, a couple updates I have on folks. Uh, Miss uh, Jean is doing well. She's at the hospital. Jean, um, help me out. Duncan. Jean Duncan. Uh, she had to go back to the hospital. Her blood pressure dropped, and they found what they think is an ulcer. And so they think they've gotten that under control, hoping to either come home tonight or tomorrow. Um, but she was in good spirits, feeling a lot better today. Uh, Gary Hawkins is also at Duke. Uh, and last I heard, they don't know what's going on with him. They're still working through Gary Hawkins. Alkins, sorry. Sorry about that. Say again. He, uh, they're both at Duke, Maine. Potato, potato, right? Obviously not. <laughs> Who else is going to be praying for tonight? Good. She had neck surgery and it all went well. She's back home. Helen Heckler, that was. Uh, Tim and Kim's daughter, Stephanie, is a student at Southeastern. Her roommate uh, has pneumonia. Is that it? It's a pretty severe case of pneumonia. She's been on a a ventilator. Um, So it's kind of a... Is it touch and go, or is she somewhat steady? Okay. So she's improving today, but still a... A scary situation. Caroline McLaurin, if you didn't hear that. Jenny Purrier hopefully being induced tomorrow, pending the availability of a bed. Unless he comes in the interim. Somebody else? Stan Whitler? Whitlow. Stan Whitlow family. You said in Leesburg? The, the Taylor family, they're members of Antioch, lost their son. They live just around the corner from us. So, very unexpected from what I understand. So just be mind, be prayerful for them. Yeah. 
Linda Oakley. Yeah. Stage four pancreatic cancer. Lewis Harris, brother of Sandra Hicks. That was not me, by the way. Ronnie's sister Sue dealing with stomach cancer. All right. Well, let's go before the Lord. Lord, we count it a privilege to come before you in prayer and to bear the needs of our brothers and sisters and those of connected to families here, and Lord, we do bring them before you and uh, lay them at your feet, knowing that there's no better place and there's no other place to, to come in time of need. And you tell us, O oh God, that we can come to your throne and find help in time of need. So Lord, as we pray uh, for these men and women, Lord, we, we, we ask that they too would pray, that they too would come before you and find peace of heart and a peace of mind, uh, peace that surpasses understanding that Paul speaks of, the peace of knowing that you are both in control and that you love us. Lord, we praise you for the, the good reports that we've heard of successful surgeries and things of that nature. Lord, we also pray and plead for those who are sick, for those who are suffering, for those who are dealing with ongoing issues. We know there's just there's so many. Uh, even the list we make, Lord, don't even begin to scratch the surface of all the need that exists in the world. Lord, we know the hope of the world is not found in the world. The hope, the hope that people need is not found in healing, physical healing. It's not found in, in anything that the world has to offer. Lord, our ultimate hope is found in Your Son, Jesus Christ. So God, we pray that we do pray for healing. It's right to pray for healing. It's wrong to trust, put our whole hope in physical healing. So God, we pray that 
as much as we want these folks to be healed, we, we pray that more than anything that you would heal them spiritually. That you would keep them close to you and that they might know you through your son. We pray for our government as they are moving through these impeachment hearings. Lord, there's just so much brokenness and so much turmoil going on. And we, we pray, oh God, that you would give wisdom and insight. You tell us in your word to be subject to the governing authorities, knowing that you have put them there. And so, God, even though it seems the world is so broken, we, we know that it's not outside of your control. That ultimately you have the final say in all things. So while we pray for them, God, we know that our hope isn't in them. Our hope is in you. That hope is steadfast. So we set our mind on the things above where Christ is. We turn our attention now to hear from your word. We pray all of these things in your holy name. Amen. Alright. Matthew 7 is where we're at tonight. Coming into the last... Part. I, I ran out of notes, sorry about that, if you came in. Too many folks came, sorry. Um, if you don't have some, I'll happy, happily give you some afterwards. Matthew 7, and you see there at the top, we're going to talk about the interpersonal kingdom life. And what, that, what I mean by that is, Jesus is now going to talk about, not that he hasn't been talking about our inner life, but he's now going to specifically talk about why the inner transformation that the gospel brings is essential. Why we can't go about this Christian life without having the gospel transform our hearts and our minds, that which makes up our, our, our soul. Uh, if all we're doing is going through the physical outward motions, if all we're doing is participating in things, if all we're doing is using a vocabulary, a Christian vocabulary, and if it doesn't mean anything... That's not going to suffice for salvation, number one, but it's not going to create and, and cultivate a healthy Christian life with other Christians. So, really, this is the foundation, or this is foundational for understanding how and why we relate to one another in the church. If we don't get this down, then we can get together physically all we want to, we'll never be the church. And the sad reality is there are many bodies and groups of people around our country and around the world that do that, that they gather together, but they never share in the life of the kingdom of God together. They have common activities, they meet in a common place, but they don't share among each other in the realities of the gospel. And so Jesus is going to talk about that. We're shifting from, if you remember... Chapter 6, I called that practical Christianity. We're going to shift to the inner life of the believer. In chapter 5, 17 through 48, Jesus teaches on how to rightly understand and interpret the law. If you remember that, he said, You have heard it said from those of old, but I tell you. You've heard it said you shall not murder, but I tell you. You've heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you. And so he's, he's reinterpreting the law rightly. He's telling us how to apply the law rightly in those verses, in that section of the sermon. And then in chapter 6, he's teaching, on, he's teaching his followers how to develop a true kingdom life in the world. How do you live out the realities of the gospel in everyday life? Because it's not just that we share a set of beliefs, 
but that we should share a common way of living. That we don't just get together once a week because we believe something similarly. Now, we, we do. But we should live the same way. And so that should, that should express itself in giving to the poor, he talked about, and, and praying, and fasting, and our allegiances, and ultimately in how we deal with worry and anxiety, where he says the answer to anxiety is not becoming less anxious or getting what causes you anxiety out of your life. He says the answer to anxiety is having more of God. Not less anxiety, more of God. And so here in chapter 7, in these first 12 verses, he's going to teach on how the kingdom of God personally transforms the inner lives of Christians and therefore transforms, transforms the communal life of the church. So if I'm being transformed by the power of the gospel, which the Bible says if I'm saved, I am being changed. The two go together. You can't be saved and not be being changed. So if I am being changed and you are being changed, then we will relate to one another based on what has changed. On the other hand, if we are not being changed, if we are simply claiming that we believe something, but there's no internal transformation, then we will try to relate to one another in normal human ways. Such as a shared interest like sports or a hobby or something like that. And there's nothing wrong with those things. But we try to relate based on what's common. And what should be most common inside the life of the church is the gospel. And so Jesus is going to show that what binds us together most is the transformation that Jesus is doing inside of each of us. One of my favorite Christian writers says that what binds us together is that Jesus is doing the same thing in both of us. That Jesus is forgiving you of your sin, and guess what? He's, he's forgiving me of my sin. And Jesus is making you like Him, and Jesus is making me like Him. And so that means that we are bound together. We are forged together. We can relate about other things, but what's most essential is that we share in the kingdom of God because of Jesus Christ. And so, what I hope we come to see is that kingdom life, which is living as God intends for us to live, under the influence and guidance of, of His Word, that's how God intends that we live, that kingdom life allows for followers of Jesus to live properly in relationship to others. Now, what's the flip side of that? If living properly in relation to each other depends on the gospel, what's the flip side? Right. That if we're not living in the gospel, if we're not relating to each other in the gospel, then we're living wrongly and we're trying to relate to one another wrongly. And eventually, if we are trying to relate to each other inside of the church, if we're trying to share in life together on any basis other than the work of Jesus Christ, we will ultimately fall flat. We'll ultimately fail. There will ultimately be division and fracture and strife because we will be attempting to do something that Jesus says only happens in and through the gospel. 
And so the kingdom life sets us free both from improper judgmental attitudes, which, hey, maybe you've met a judgmental person before. Maybe you haven't. But the gospel sets us free from wrongful judgment while also guarding us from people who want to hurt us. Now, you notice I said it guards us from wrongful judgment, meaning there's rightful judgment. We'll talk about that. But it also guards us from people who would hurt us because those people exist in the world too. There are people who are just out to get who are vindictive towards and and want to harm Christians. Now, we shouldn't be fearful of those people. Jesus says very clearly, and a little later in Matthew, don't fear him who kills the body. Fear him who can destroy both the body and soul in the hell of fire. Now, I mean, you know, that, that cuts right to the heart of what we fear the most. What are most people scared of the most? Dying. And Jesus says, hey, don't be scared of dying. Rather, be fearful of God who's on the other side of that. So, let's look first at... Well, actually, I'm going to read the text, and then we'll look at judging others appropriately. Matthew chapter 7, pick up in verse 1. He says, Judge not that you not be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye where there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asked him for bread, will give him a stone? For he asked for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. So what I hope to show you is how these three segments of Scripture all fit together. That they're all connected. That the teachings about the log and the speck are connected to the dogs and the pigs, are connected to the ask, seek, knock, are connected to the golden rule. But let's start with Judging others appropriately. Jesus has spent a considerable amount of time. If, you, if, you, if you've been with us through most of the sermon, or if you've ever read any of the gospel accounts, Jesus does not hold back from condemning, judging the religious officials of his day. He's very critical of them. He's very condemnatory of them. He condemns them for hypocrisy. Later in the gospel, he calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. He says, you look all pretty, but you're nothing but a house of death. That's what that means. You look very pretty. Your walls are nice and scrubbed white, but don't forget that is a wall of a tomb. This is for death. 
So there's a lot of pretty religious, clean people out there that are just whitewashed tombs. And Jesus is saying, you know, we've seen Jesus be critical of these kind of folks, but here he's warning, you and I can do the exact same thing. If we are not careful, if we are not holding fast to the truth of the gospel and all that it says to us and about us and how to live through it and in it, if we're not careful, we too can fall into hypocrisy like those religious leaders. And so he warns, judge not that you not be judged. And so this sets the principal truth for these five verses, verses 1 through 5. The principle is, judge not so that you are not judged. We see there on your notes, in, in the, that, that Greek phrase, judge not, the word has about five different meanings. And those meanings are ordinary discernment or evaluation. It can mean something official like a, like a, like a law setting, a courtroom setting. It can mean the bestowal of reward, that we are judging someone uh, worthy. It can mean uh, pronouncement of guilt. Or it can mean an absolute determination of a person's fate. So the same thing with the English language. Some words can mean different things or take on different meanings, depending on what context they're used in. And so here, we've got to ask the question. I see, you see there, I've got it listed. We must ask, which, which is most appropriate to what Jesus is saying? Well, Jesus wouldn't tell us not to do something that He has already done. He'd be condemning himself. And we already know he's been judging. He's been being critical. He's been, he's been passing judgment on some of these religious leaders. And so, as I noted there, the, the, the numbers four and five are the most appropriate for the context. For understanding what Jesus is saying. He's warning his disciples against setting themselves over and above one another by making a pronouncement on one standing before God. So what that means is, you and I don't have the ability to say, I can tell uh, you're not right with God. You're not saved for sure. It's not our job to make those kind of pronouncements. That's God's job. Another way to think about it is to extend salvation. I can't give you salvation. I can't decide if you have salvation or not. Ultimately, that's God's to decide. His point is that we must be extraordinarily careful with this because we will also be judged in the same way. What he's saying, the measure you use will be measured to you. The way in which you relate to one another is the way in which God relates to you. And if we drift into that kind of self-righteousness where we are just walking around judging people, saying, well, you're, you're clearly not a Christian. You, no way you can be a Christian. You're not like me. That's the kind of approach we take. Jesus says, that's what you're going to get. Which, we've already kind of come across this in the sermon, if you remember. In chapter 6, Jesus says, don't be like those hypocrites who go on the street corner and pray in big, loud, fancy words so that people will hear them. For I tell you, they've, they've got the reward. If all you want is for people to notice how religious you are, then that's your only reward. If all you do is parade around how, how, how religious you are, he's saying you're being a hypocrite, a self-righteous hypocrite. And so, don't judge people like that. You see, the, the, um, 
I'm trying to remember where it's at. I can't remember the exact text. But there's a, there's a, a, a story in the Gospels where uh, one of the Pharisees is praying and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like the tax collector. And the tax collector says, he beats his breast and says, God, please forgive a sinner like me. And the, the, the comparison is, you've got one man who's so self-righteous that he's condemning himself in his prayer, he doesn't even know it. And yet this other man is so devastated by his sin that all he can do is beat his chest and utter, God, forgive me, a sinner. And Jesus says, which one of those do you think is legitimately saved? There's one of them that thinks he's saved. And that's what he's going to get. Not salvation, but he's going to get the fruits of his self-righteousness. Well, in James chapter 4, you're going to flip over there. It's a very helpful text when it comes to evaluating our hearts. And if you're like me, it cuts you to the quick all too often because it's, it gets to the, the core. James chapter 4, he's talking about the heart, he's talking about sin. And he asks the question, James chapter 4 verse 1, he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And then look down at verse 11. He says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And there is only one lawgiver and one judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So again, we need to ask, what's the context? What is James saying? Are we not allowed to judge? Are we not allowed to pass judgment? Are we not allowed to discern, to evaluate? Well, that's, that's not what's in view. What's in view, again, is passing the law. James says, don't act like you make pronouncements on the basis of the law. Don't act like you are the lawgiver. There is only one lawgiver, and he is God. There is only one ultimate judge, and he is God. And so you see, in the context of James 4, what James is getting at is that our self-righteousness comes from our own self-centeredness. Back up in chapter 4, back up at the top of chapter 4, he says, what causes you to be stressed out? What causes you to fight? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? Here's what he means. We are coveting creatures. We do. We want stuff. We want material things. We want emotional things. We want family things. We want all kind of things. And when we don't get what we want, we murder. That's what he says. Now we know what he means because Jesus has already said, you've heard it said you shall not murder, but I tell you, if you hate in your heart, then you've murdered. And so here's what James is saying. When we want something so much, when someone gets in our way, we decide that they are an obstacle to us getting what we want, thus they become the object of our wrath. 
I wanted that parking spot. That person was in front of me. They shouldn't have been in front of me. They deserve to die. Maybe you utter that out loud. Maybe you don't. You probably felt that way. I want to come home. I want to sit down. I want to be quiet. I've had a long day. When I get home, there's lists for me to do and the kids are being loud. They become the obstacles to me getting what I want. Thus, my wrath is turned towards them. I begin to murder them in my heart. Maybe there's a possession you want. You've been saving up for it. You've got your heart set on it. And then the car breaks. And so you, you evaluate, do I really need to fix the car? Because I really want this. You see what he's saying. The reason why we're so angry with each other, the reason why that we, have, we have trouble with each other, is because we're not relating to one another through the gospel. And this is not a one and done kind of thing. This is a every moment kind of thing. A choice that we're faced with moment by moment. What's going to rule my affections? What's going to rule the relationship that we share together? If I want something, and you want something different, is it worth murdering each other in our hearts over it? If we're in the body of Christ, the answer is do everything you can so that that doesn't happen. You see, self-righteousness leads to that. But humility through the gospel says that there's nothing worth more than being unified through the gospel. There's nothing worth letting something come between us because we are family because of Jesus Christ. And so you, do, you, do you see how important that is? Do you see how self-righteousness leads to division and brokenness? It can lead to anger and hatred. It can lead, it leads, not it can lead, it does lead to, to broken homes and broken relationships and broken churches. Anger and hatred are so deadly and they're so common. And that's why James says, don't make the mistake of, of misunderstanding. We'll flip back to Matthew 7. Jesus' warning in Matthew 7 is against judging. And it's against judging in a self-righteous sense. It's against judging in a way that is only God's to do. And it really is, it's the reverse of the positive blessings of the fifth beatitude where Jesus says, be merciful for God is merciful. Be merciful as you've received mercy. If I'm merciful as God is merciful, then I am not going to be self-righteously judgmental to you. Otherwise, that's just proof positive that I haven't received mercy. The warning also revisits the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who sin against us. If I'm not forgiving people who have sinned against me, then I am showing that I don't understand what God has forgiven me. And so true disciples of Jesus who have been impacted by the mercy of God will extend that mercy to one another. They will be eager. We will be eager to look for opportunities to be merciful with one another 
That doesn't mean it's always easy. Doesn't mean it's always the most natural feeling thing. But we will be eager to be merciful with one another because of all that God has forgiven us. You see, according to Jesus, the person who is at fault in this passage is the one who makes his or her way of doing things the standard. You have to act this way. I say so. You have to act this way because this is what we've always done. You've got to do this because that's the way we do it here. And in doing so, that person takes the place of God or attempts to take the place of God. They don't actually take his place. They can't. But that's what we're doing. When we insist on our way, when we say it's my way or the highway, when we say you've got to obey me or else, what we are saying is God's not the judge, I am. You have to appease me, not God. And what's most important is your relationship to me, not your relationship to God. And so when disciples develop these critical condemning attitudes, and that's the pattern in which we live, we have forced love and genuine care out of all of our relationships. You know those kind of people. They leave wreckage everywhere they go. They hurt people all the time. They don't have any good relationships. And if we do not exhibit the redemptive love of God to one another, we are demonstrating that we really do not know God's mercy and God's forgiveness. Forgiveness is never off the table when it comes between when it comes to you and I. Between two people, forgiveness is never off the table as impossible sometimes as it seems. Because when we think I could never forgive that person or they could never forgive me for what has been done. If that's our thinking, we are not allowing the truth of God to influence us. Because the worst thing that we can do to one another does not even compare to the offense that we have committed against God. And so when I forget, when I forget what God has done for me through the gospel, I will not be forgiving and merciful to other people. And such distress and unhealthy patterns of living are often accompanied by unregenerate sin that hides away in our hearts. And what I mean is this. If you've ever met somebody or you know somebody who's just mean, who hurts people, who's, who's not merciful, who's unforgiving, who's harboring sin, there's probably something else going on in their life. There's probably some other sin that has attached to their heart that they just don't want to deal with. They don't, want to, they don't want to let it out in the open. Because if you remember, in Matthew 12, Jesus says a tree is known by its fruits. Out of the mouth, the heart speaks. And so if someone is just known for being mean, someone is known for being unforgiving, if someone is known for just being critical, then you know that there's something in here. There's something right there that's it's attached onto their heart and won't let it go. And that's what's coming out. If, so, if you've ever met someone who's just self-righteous, who just wants to, wants to brag about how great they are, about how much they know and about how much they don't sin, 
then you know that that evil of self-righteousness has a hold of their heart. And it's coming out. And so Jesus illustrates this with this parable of the speck and the log. He, he highlights the foolishness of a person who attempts to pass judgment in this self-righteousness. Not only does Jesus say it's wrong, he says, I'm going to show you just how foolish it is by giving us this, this, uh, this example that we would say, well, yeah. If somebody's got a, a small speck in their eye, happens all the time. You get something in your eye, it feels terrible. The world stops at that moment until you get it out. And the person, the last person you want to get it out is the person who has a tree hanging out of their face. Because they can't see it. Jesus is drawing attention to the size of the problem. The issue is not that there are self-righteous people in the church and righteous people. The issue is that everybody deals with sin. Awfully quiet on that one. Everybody deals with sin. And if we don't relate to one another through the gospel, then we won't have any kind of genuine relationship. And so the, the parable illustrates the contrast between the insignificance of the problem of the accused, that's the speck, it's insignificant, compared to the magnitude of the accuser's problem. The one who is saying, you've got something in your eye, has the far larger problem than the person with the speck in their eye. The accuser can't help anyone because his or her vision is impaired by this plank, by this huge issue in their own life that they just won't acknowledge or won't get over or won't deal with. The real problem is that they're, they're a hypocrite, is what Jesus is saying. You're acting religious, you're acting self-righteous, you're acting like this whole thing together, and we can all see that you've got a log in your eye. Hypocrisy means performing external acts of righteousness that mask, perhaps even from one's own self, one's own inner corruption. You ever heard somebody say, I don't go to church because of church folk? <laughs> I don't go to church because that's where all the hypocrites are. You know, unfortunately, there's a, there's, a, there's a grain of truth in that. And Jesus is talking about such people. That if we are not careful, we can fall into the temptation of dealing with it, everybody else's sin and not realizing that I have the largest problem. Hypocrite thinks that he or she can clearly see the sin of a fellow disciple and is condemning them before God. But he's not, however... He can't see his own self-righteousness. He can't see the fact that he's being judgmental in a sinful, self-condemning way. And as I noted, sometimes this hypocrisy, or I didn't note this earlier, sometimes we can deal with this. If it's just a, a simple matter of hypocrisy, sometimes just a small confrontation can deal with it. Hey, did, do you know how you sounded? Did you mean to sound like that? And sometimes that's all it takes. But as I said a moment ago, a lot of times this type of hypocrisy is the fruit of something far deeper. When we get to the point where we're walking around casually and comfortably pointing out everybody's sin, 
then there's probably some hardness of heart going on in our own heart. Where we are harboring sin. Where we are not dealing with sin. Where we are not allowing other people to be in our lives to guard us and to know us. It's often a cover, as I noted there, for a more deadly sin that lurks in the heart of the one offering the accusation. So Jesus calls us to examine ourselves because a hypocrite like this doesn't know God is the simple fact of the matter. Jesus says, it's possible to be like this, so don't be like this. Be honest with yourself. Religiosity, y'all like that word? Being religious can sometimes blind us to what's to, to reality. We can get in the habit of going to church, of going to a Sunday school class, of being in a Bible study, of praying. We can get into habits of doing Christian religious things and be blind to the fact that we have a tree hanging out of our eye. And if that goes on long enough, then not only do we forget that we have that tree there, we don't let other people tell us we have a tree there. You see, this, the, the self-righteous Pharisees, when Jesus started saying, hey, you've got an issue, they didn't say with gratitude, thank you, I don't, I don't want anything coming between God and myself, I don't want anything coming between you and I, thank you so much for guarding my heart in the way that the Bible says to do. What tends to happen is when a religious person, when a self-righteous person is confronted, hatred comes out. How dare you? Don't you know who I am? Don't you know how religious I am? And it aroused such a fierce hatred in the Pharisees that they murdered Jesus. So they went the path of James 4. What caused Quarrels and fights among the Pharisees, it's because they thought they had a handle on being religious. They thought God was going to approve of them. And then Jesus came along and said, you've got it mixed up, brothers. And they said, I'll show you. And so they murdered him. You see, several people like this attached themselves to Jesus during his ministry. They were religious folk. They were with Jesus. One of them controlled the money back. And that man betrayed him. Nobody thought Judas... See, we've gotten too comfortable with Judas. We start hearing the nativity scene, we're like, oh yeah, Judas is going to do that. And we forget the deep betrayal that the disciples must have felt. They lived with this man. They shared their meals with this man. They shared conversation after conversation with this man. This man saw Jesus perform miracles. They, he heard Jesus teach and then this man betrayed Jesus. This was not a Pharisee. He was one of the ones condemning the Pharisees for their self-righteousness. This is the person in the church that we would be devastated. How could he do that? How could she do that? We've gotten too comfortable with Judas. And I'm afraid we've gotten comfortable with self-righteousness. You see, the, the most loving thing we can do for one another is to call out sin. So you don't have to say it out loud, but when's the last time you went to someone in humility and said, hey, I've noticed there may be some danger in your heart. When's the last time somebody came to you and called out your sin and you said, thanks for caring enough to 
like it, by the way. We're not meant to like that kind of stuff. But You see, Hebrews 3, it says, we are to guard one another's hearts lest there be an evil, unbelieving heart leading us to fall away. So when, when a disciple removes the plank of self-righteousness from their eye, then we can... Then we are, we are led into humility. When, when we allow the power of the gospel to remove the self-righteousness from our eyes, when we allow the power of the gospel to remove our trust in ourselves, then we can begin to engage in real heart-to-heart discipleship. No longer am I trying to get that speck when I've got a tree. I'm saying, hey, I've got specks too, but let's help each other. Let's love each other. Let's urge each other towards Jesus. And so... A mark of a true discipling community is that we have a responsibility to help each other remove the specks from our lives. You owe me that, by the way. You, as my church family, are to keep a watch on my life. And if you see something in me, you are to come to me. The Bible talks about how to do that. And if I see something in you, guess what? I'm going to come to you. And the Bible says that the gospel has a hold of our hearts. Then it won't be easy, but it'll be good. So after self-criticism takes place, our relationships become, are built on the power of the gospel. Man, I'm not really good at time management. Either that or the Bible's just really good. I'm enjoying it. I don't know about y'all. He talks about evaluating others appropriately in verse 6. He says, don't, don't, uh, don't give to dogs what's holy. Don't throw your pearls before pigs. And what he's saying there, don't be ignorant so that it'll, it'll harm you. Don't be so naive that you walk into harm because... His point is there are people out there who are just, they're, they're not going to hear the gospel. They're not going to respond to the gospel. And so don't, don't continually go to them. Don't keep giving them something when they're not responding. Ultimately, we don't know if they'll respond or not. But I heard a professor of mine once say, no one deserves to hear the gospel twice until everyone is heard once. And the point is that we don't, not that we evangelize one person and say, all right, now it's up to God. But that if we continually are in a relationship with someone who is harsh and critical and harmful, Jesus says, just recognize that. You see what he's doing? He's judging appropriately. Don't pass judgment on them. Don't say, well, clearly they're going to hell. Recognize that in that moment, the gospel is not going to take root. Recognize in that moment, it would just be best to end that conversation. Pearls in this this parable symbolize the message of the gospel. It's precious. It's the most, it's worth more than anything else in the world. And he says, "Don't, don't disgrace it by letting someone trample all over it. You know where this happens all the time? Facebook, Twitter, all kinds of social. You see, social media allows us to detach from ourselves somehow, and we think we can act like unemotional beings that we can say whatever we want to say, and there's just no consequence. 
And the sad fact of reality is that social media has made us more unsocial creatures than ever before. Because we feel the freedom to hurt one another. Because we think we're not dealing with real people. But Jesus is saying, recognize, evaluate people appropriately. And so then he goes into asking for guidance. Don't act like you're God. Relate to one another in humility and through the gospel. Don't, don't just continuously give this precious truth to people who just disdain it, who, who want to bring harm and shame to you. And if you need some wisdom, he says, ask. Ask and it will be given. Seek and you'll find it. Knock and you'll open the door. And so at this point, Jesus is starting to, to close the sermon. He's going to start applying it and, and kind of land the plane. And his focus is on our source of stability. How do we learn to live in this kingdom life that Jesus is talking about? What's going to keep us steady as we're trying to live out this, this humble life of dependence on God? Not this self-righteous, I got this all together. Y'all don't clearly. Not that kind of life. But how is it that we're to discern between wrong judgment and right discernment? That is, judging and evaluating people appropriately. Because we do that all the time. There's a wrong way and a right way. And Jesus says we are to ask. We should approach God and expect that we get an answer. Both things. Go to God and expect that He will give you an answer. He says, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. So asking indicates this, this coming to God in humility, in my consciousness of, of, of need, the same way a child comes to his dad or his mom. I need you. There's nothing proud when a little kid runs up to his parent when he, when he needs him or needs her. That parent, I mean, that child is not, not displaying their pride they're displaying a need. They don't care what's going on in the world. If you have little kids, you know, it doesn't matter where you are. If something goes wrong in that child's life, there's a temper tantrum, loud screams and tears, and they're coming to you. And that's what God's saying. We are to come to God. To seek means that we are to pray. We are to pray always. We are to go to God in prayer. We are to pray His will. And to knock indicates that we are, we are persevering in that. That we are continuously going to God. We're not, we're not giving up on that. We're praying for the salvation of unbelievers. We're praying for the hard-heartedness of the hypocrite. We're praying for wisdom to deal with a wayward brother or sister. We don't cease in those things. And so the, the point is that we are continuously asking the Father for wisdom. We are con that, that becomes the pattern of our life. What is true of a mature disciple of Christ, they are in communion with the Father all the time. And so in the, the few minutes I have left, I want to focus on this golden rule. He says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also for them. Really, this is, is Jesus' summarizing of the sermon. The sermon kind of ends at this point. Everything from here forward is going to be make a choice. Is what he's going to say. You've heard the teaching. It's been laid before you. Now choose your master. Remember what he said? You can't have two. It's going to be God or it's going to be the world. 
And so everything after chapter 7, verse 12 is going to be make, it, make your choice. But now he's summing it up. He's bringing it all together. And he sums it up by saying, whatever you wish others would do to you, do also for them. In the rule, the golden rule as we call it, that rule gives us the foundation for a liberating and free and joy-filled community of faith. If we don't embrace this rule, in the context in which Jesus gives it, not just as this, this moral line of, hey, you see, we've turned it negative. Y'all notice that in the school system? Don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. We a lot of times turn it negative. But Jesus spends it in a positive way. He's, and he's, and he's not just that he's doing, he's saying, I'm summing up for you the Bible. So we ask the question, what's, right, what's the right thing to do in any given circumstance? He says, whatever you would want that person to do to you, that's your answer. Do you want others to be patient with you as you struggle and strive for faithfulness? Be patient with them. Do you want other people to keep their voice at a normal tone instead of yelling? Don't yell at them. Do you want other people to forgive you when you mess up? Forgive them. You see his point? This summary expresses all that God intended in the Old Testament for the righteousness of his community, which is Israel, and what Jesus expects for us. If we are to be a church, brothers and sisters, if we are to be a church of Jesus Christ, then this is where the rubber meets the road. That we take what we have here, this vertical relationship we have with God and all that comes with it, and we, we, we push it out to each other. And we say, I'm going to relate to you the way God relates to me. Because I want you to treat me in that way, so I'm going to treat you in that way. So it brings up two significant points about what stabilizes us as Christians. The first one is that our stability comes when we learn to depend on God for everything. Money doesn't provide everything. Happiness doesn't provide everything. Family doesn't provide everything. There's nothing in this world that provides for us in the way that God does. And that's why he says, Look, you're worried about your clothes and your food and all that silly stuff. That's what, that's what believers worry about. And look how their lives are going. He said, don't, don't, don't worry about that stuff. Realize our provision comes from God and from God alone. And that will bring stability to your life. And the second thing he says is, stability comes to a healthy commitment to live for the benefit of others. When I realize that Christ has freed me from my sin, that Christ has freed me from the need to be self-righteous, and Christ has freed me from the need to be right all the time and to insist on my way when I'm free from all that, guess what? Then I can start caring for you. Then I can start seeking your good. Then I, then I begin to realize the heart of Mark 10.45 where Jesus says, I came not to be served, but to serve. Give my life as a ransom. You see, I noted there, this is where the life of the church begins to flourish. If all we have are a bunch of self-righteous, well-behaved Christians, 
use that loosely, <laughs> if that's all we are, then we don't really have a church. We're not going to relate to one another in the very real, essential gospel way. We're just going to share in very casual, surface level things. We're not going to be in each other's lives. We're not going to be having conversations about where we're struggling with sin. We're not going to be calling each other up and saying, hey, I'm wandering off into self-righteousness. Help me. I'm dealing with this. Come help me. We're not going to be able to recognize what we are dealing with because we won't be watching each other. But on the, on the contrary, if, if what the sermon says is true of us, if we are not self-righteous people, but rather gospel people, then God says, you will have such a richness of experience with each other that you won't ever want to leave. And so Jesus moves the motivation for being religious from the outward performance, and he pushes it right here. It starts right who are you? What do you love? You see, true disciples don't judge one another inappropriately because they have experienced God's mercy and will thus extend it to other people. True disciples learn whether it's advisable to share the gospel with those who are apt to scorn it or not. True disciples continue to develop their inner growth through persistent prayer, through communion with the Father, through relationship with one another. And you see there, the determination of what is good. We all want what's good. But when we are faithfully following Jesus, when we are letting Him define that word, we see that it comes from the kingdom of God. We let God define what is good. We become content with the things that God says, this is good in your life, even though you can't see how. On Sunday, when we look at Mark 4, with the story of Jesus calming the storm, those disciples did not think that storm was very good. And yet what we'll see is that that was good in that moment for them. Because God was finding good. And so his point is that we must be filled with the Spirit. We can't obey our way to Jesus. We can't have a genuine uh, experience of gospel community without being genuinely renewed by the gospel. I've heard a lot of people say they can do church at home. I don't need the church or other kind of mess. You see, the gospel reconciles us to two places. Everybody understands, or most of the time, everybody understands the gospel reconciles us to God. That through Jesus Christ, I now have access to God. But you see, the gospel also reconciles us to each other. And that's not optional. If all I'm doing is focusing on how I'm related to God, and I'm not concerned about how I relate to you, I'm in sin. Love for God enables us to rightly love one another. When I'm not rightly relating to God, I won't rightly relate to you. So the, the, the beautiful thing is, Jesus holds up this, this incredibly enticing picture of, of the Christian life. And he says, it is yours. The problem is, we come along and say, all right, I want it, but I want it my way. My prayer for my life and my heart and your heart is that you hear. Jesus gives you 
ears to hear. Any uh, thoughts or questions before we close? All right, let me pray. Lord, thank you for this word. I thank you, O oh Lord, that it is sobering, clarifying. Lord, thank you for holding up this picture of beautiful community, of, of beautiful relationship to one another. Thank you, O oh God, for helping us to see that self-righteousness of, of playing religious, of, of, just, of just going through motions, thank you for helping us to see that not only is that not helpful, it's actually deadly harmful. It keeps us from knowing you rightly. It keeps us from experiencing the gospel. It keeps us from relating to one another rightly. And Lord, it ultimately harms our community. Lord, I plead and pray that we are a humble people. That we love one another because you have first loved us and we extend the love that you give us through Jesus Christ to one another. That we obey because we love you out of our hearts. That we build one another up because you are building us up. That, that we pour out because your word says in Colossians 2 verse 9 that we are always being filled through Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we have ears to hear all that you are saying and that we might be found faithful. Pray all of this in faith and in your great name. Amen. I didn't even drink my coffee.